If you are unable, I would encourage you to rise as we read God's Word together from Philippians chapter 4. And this morning we'll be concluding our time in the book of Philippians. Uh, Next week we'll be starting Malachi, and uh, Nate will be preaching for us to kick that series off. But hear the words of the Lord from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 23, the reading of God's Word. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudia and I entreat sympathy to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored, labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel... When I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me. Greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we give you thanks again for your word. We pray that you would carry these words to these people gathered here today. Holy Spirit, guide my words and may they give you glory. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Normal is changing with each passing news report. The world does not seem it would take much more to either implode or explode. What will become of the world for my children or my grandchildren? Is it safe? Is it safe out there? Who can I trust? What can I trust? It seems that everything that was once right and good and true is somehow slipping between the fingers. Uneasiness is the thing that seems right and true. It seems that each and every person is a bit like a fish out of water. Tensions are high. Skepticism stings raw and exposed emotions. 
we have a lot in common with the church at Philippi. If you recall, Philippi was deeply entrenched into Roman culture and society and the church at Philippi, and there was much tension and anxiety that was just all around among the ranks of this newly planted church. They were trying to determine what and how they were to go about life. What does it look like when skepticism and fear and anxiety are the words of the day? What does it look like when they wonder, who can I trust? What can I trust? Who do I turn to? Can I trust my friend, my neighbor? What does life look like? It seems as if everything we knew was right and true is no longer the case. Beloved, we have a lot in common with the church of Philippi. Wherever you are on the spectrum of any given topic, hot-button topic of the day, we feel the tension, don't we? We feel uneasiness of the world that we live in. We feel and know the fear, and we sense and understand and live with the anxiety. I hear this from the people that I talk to. This is not fabrication or just preacher talk. This is real life. This is who we are. These are the conversations that we have because these are the conversations that I have with you all. These are the conversations that the church of Philippi was wrestling with as well. There's a very real sense of hesitancy and skepticism. And these things cause thick walls to be built around our bubbles of existence. And they get thicker and thicker with each passing news report and each passing day. We take cover behind our blockades of rationale and justification. And behind those blockades, we lob judgments and condemnation at the other side of the argument. But however, the things we face today are nothing new. Why are we racked with fear, tension, and anxiety? This is what Paul is wrestling with with his beloved friends in Philippi. This is what Paul is pleading with the church at Philippi to understand, and this is what he pleads with us to understand this morning, that there's hope. There's a time to rejoice. The command that Paul then gives to his friends that are wrestling with these very same things, the same things that we're wrestling with here today in 2021, exactly the same things, the command that Paul says to them is what? Rejoice! In the middle of all of this stuff, in the middle of all of the things going on in the world today, he says rejoice. Not once, but twice. He says rejoice. And again I say to you, rejoice. And so what I say to you, my beloved friends at Redeemer Arlington, rejoice. And again, I say to you, rejoice. But that's really hard to do. Rejoice in the world. Rejoice in the Lord always. This word rejoice is used 16 times in his letter to his friends in Philippi. It's been the theme throughout the entire letter. Throughout much of the sermons, many of the sermons that I've preached, we hear this same word over and over again. Rejoice, for the Lord loves you and is gracious to you. Paul desires for them to rejoice in the Lord. And verse 4 then, 
is one of the most joyful verses in the entirety of the letter. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. In the middle of the anxiety, in the middle of the tension, in the middle of the worry and the fear, the encouragement that Paul provides his friends is that they ought to rejoice. This then, as I've said, is the encouragement I give to you. Friends, rejoice. And again, let me say to you, rejoice. But this is something that must have been as hard for them to hear as it is for us to hear. Because sometimes it just doesn't make sense. It's difficult to rejoice when things are difficult. It's difficult to rejoice when we worry. It's difficult to rejoice when anxiety is the emotion that's the everyday. But he says to them a very profound thing in a very few words. Look at verse 5 with me. He says rejoice. And then what does he say? He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. He's not saying to rejoice in other people's failures and your successes. He's not saying to lob memes and repost opinions. He's not telling them to fight and joust, but he's rather be reasonable. Or another word that has been used in other translations, which perhaps is a little bit easier to understand, is gentleness. He's saying rejoice and let your gentleness be known. Rejoice and be gentle. Rejoice for what the Lord has done in and through Jesus Christ and be gentle because this is how the world understands and knows Jesus through our reasonableness, through our gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. For those who rejoice in the Lord, understand that the Lord is in control. How do we rejoice? We rejoice when we understand that the Lord is sovereign and He is in control of all things. For those who rejoice in the Lord, understand that it is the Lord who loves and cares for us. For it is the Lord, for it is those who rejoice in the Lord who are gentle in spirit and truth. One person phrases this well. Gentleness, this is how other people are to experience Christians' joy in the Lord. Gentleness means not insisting on every right letter of the law or custom, yielding gentle, kind, courteous, and tolerant. Aristotle describes a gentle person as the one who by choice and habit does what is equitable and who does not stand on his rights unduly, but is content to receive a smaller share, although he has the law on his side. Does this define who we are? Does this define me? Does this define Ryan? Are we gentle? Am I gentle? Are we reasonable? Am I gentle with the person with whom I disagree? Can I disagree with someone and remain gentle? Can I yield and be courteous? Honestly and frankly, if we feel as if we must dig our heels in and fight for the letter of the law, then the answer to that question is simply and frankly, no, we're not. Are we able to hear and empathize with another's perspective 
their story and be gentle and kind. If or when we find ourselves bottled up with anger and frustration, fear and anxiety, are we rejoicing in the Lord? Are we rejoicing in the Lord and His sovereign control over all things? Or is there something in us that demands and desires control and to be right? Or to have what we think is ours? What Paul is saying to his friends and his joyful encouragement is simple. Rejoice. Set these things aside and be rejoiced because God is who He is. Be gentle not only to your friends, but do you see that word? He says to everyone. Not just friends and family, but to everyone. For this is how the world knows Jesus. He reminds them again of His earlier statements to to regard others as, as more important than yourselves. To look outside of ourselves. Turn our devotion and turn our dedication to to those around us. To look up and out. And not to focus on our needs and our desires and our wants, our fears, our anxieties. If our primary concern is whether or not we're being dealt with fairly, we fail to exercise a fundamental element of the Christian faith. Putting others is more important as the very fundamental element of the Christian faith. Love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strengthen your neighbor as yourself. It's fundamental to the Christian faith because this is fundamental to what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. He did not consider himself more important than you. But as we saw last week, he was obedient to death, even death on a cross in order that you would know life, in order that you would know mercy and grace and love and care, that you would be united to Him, that you would have a community, that you would have a hope, that you would have eternity with your Lord and Savior. Consider others more important than yourselves. Wow. That's hard to do. There are many times I don't feel like doing that. Given the world we live in today, it's even harder to do that. It's really hard to rejoice and put others before ourselves. Paul understands this very well because his friends in Philippi feel exactly the same way. And he writes this letter chained to a Roman prison cell, and he tells them, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. How does he have the strength? How does he have the maturity? How does he have the stamina? How does he have the emotional fortitude to say these words as he's in a Roman prison, chained to a wall? And he says, rejoice. How does he get this thing? And as I read this passage a number of times this week and all of this was floating around my head, that was the question that danced through my thoughts all week. How? How? How, Paul? How do you do this? How can I do this? How can, how can we do this? It doesn't make sense. How can you rejoice in a prison? How can you tell your people to rejoice in the place where they are? 
can he expect his friends to do the same? And as Paul, as he is so gifted, anticipates and answers that very question that so many of us are asking, how can I rejoice? How can I trust? Or maybe what is Paul really answering, or what Paul really is answering is, how do I have peace in a world that's anything but peaceful? The answer is simple. It's presence. It's the presence of the Lord. How do I rejoice and how do I have peace? Because it says at the end of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. How does Paul rejoice? Because the Lord is at hand. And now there's, a, there's some, there, there really is two camps when we look at that phrase, the Lord is at hand. To be fair, there is some gray area in how do we interpret that and how do we apply that. One camp says when Paul is saying the Lord is at hand, it means that his return is imminent. The Lord Jesus is coming back. And that's hopeful. And we need to give praise and we need to anticipate the return of Jesus. And we long for the return of this our Savior. And we long for, as he ended his, his, the chapter last week, we long for the glory of Jesus transforming and making all things new. And that's good. And that's right. Others believe that it's the immediate presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit that Paul is referring to. So it's yes that we hope and that we anticipate the return of the Lord Jesus, but it's also his very imminent and immediate presence that we experience on a daily basis. seems to me that these things are not exclusive of each other. <laughs> but there's a big conjunction. There's an and in capital letters. And I actually have it capitalized, italicized, and underlined. And. It's both. The Lord is at hand means both of those things. We hope and we know in the promise of a return of Jesus Christ. And that gives us all kinds of encouragement. It gives us all sorts of comfort. But we also know that as we live our day-to-day lives, the imminent presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit is here now with us and in us and ministering on our behalf. So the encouragement that Paul has, how can he rejoice? is because the Lord is at hand. He is here. And he promises to return. And so rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. But building further upon this encouragement, Paul then provides his friends some very practical words on what it is and how it is that we receive peace from the presence of the Lord. In the middle of anxiety, in the middle of worry, in the middle of fear, uncertainty, doubt, where all of us truly long for peace. The kind of peace that comes from the presence of the Lord, how do we do that? And so this is why, again, we love Paul, because he gives us a a pretty clear map as to answering that question. The first thing he says, how do we do that, is that we pray. How do we have peace? How do we know the presence of the Lord? Pray. Pray. The first command Paul provides is to do just that. To remove the anxiety? Pray. To know the Lord's presence? Pray. To have peace, pray. And here's one of the reasons we appreciate how the Lord uses Paul to communicate his truth. 
He then gives us some really applicable points to specific ways in which we are to pray in order to know these fundamental truths about the presence and the peace of the Lord. It seems that as Paul is writing to his friends, we can read between the lines of what Paul is trying to get at. They have crossed some imaginary line, right? Not that they've crossed a line of concern. They've gone from a concern over a particular topic and they've crossed over into worry and fear and anxiety. And he's trying to communicate to them we have the peace of the Lord Jesus. Do not be anxious is his encouragement to them. Do not be anxious, but instead cast those cares upon the Lord. We are to cast all of our prayers, all of our concerns, not when it's convenient or easy or just at the end of the day or at the nighttime before we go to bed and we get in the quick obligatory prayer. He says to pray with thanksgiving in any and all situation. Now I must acknowledge there is a, an entire sermon just on these few verses that Paul gives to us in these verses 8 and 9. There's possibly an entire sermon series in this little short few verses because Paul talks about a number of things. We could talk about the three ways in which we are to pray. We pray with prayers, supplications, and thanksgiving. That's a sermon. That's a sermon series. That's three weeks. We could talk about what it looks like to make things known to God and how He knows all things before we pray. That's another sermon and another sermon series. We could talk about how in 1 John we know that, that He hears us whenever we do pray. Another sermon. But for our purposes here this morning and talking about peace and the presence of the Lord, I want to draw our attention to the power of prayer and what exactly we are doing and what happens in prayer. Prayer can be an odd thing, can't it? Prayer is that thing we wonder. How does it work? There could be two Christians in the same room. They could both be praying. I want to give a very simple and elementary illustration, right, to, to prove a point. The two people in the room, one is a Dallas Cowboys fan. The other one is a New England Patriots fan. That just happens to be the game of the afternoon, by the way. One person prays to the Lord, Lord, please help the Cowboys win. The other person prays, Lord, please help the Patriots win. So which one is it? Now, I don't think the Lord actually gives a whole lot about the outcome of the Cowboys and the Patriots this afternoon. I have my own opinions on the matter, but I don't know that the old Lord ultimately matters. However, two Christians may be praying for exactly the same thing, so how does this work? There's a good chance they're asking for opposite things. Now, you take this simple illustration into any given topic. There are two Christians in a room that are praying to the Lord and they believe in the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior and they're praying for opposite things on the same topic. So what is prayer? What is prayer? How do we think of prayer, especially given the culture and the context we find ourselves in here today? Where I know for a fact that two believers are praying for two different things. Paul says to us, let your requests be made known to the Lord. Pray. Whether you're a Patriots fan or a Cowboys fan, pray. 
This is not saying the Lord has any, does not have any idea what we're praying for because He does, and that's what we learn from 1 John as well if we want to go there. It doesn't even mean that He doesn't know the depths of our requests because He does. He knows our, our gut instincts. He knows our, our deepness of which we pray. But rather, He's saying, Paul is saying to us, when we pray, we pray in full disclosure to the Lord. What does that mean? We, we, we hold nothing back. We, we, we lay ourselves open. We bear ourselves naked before the Lord in all transparency and says, this is who I am, Lord God. We're not hiding from the Lord. Prayer is a time of absolute and utter full disclosure of all that we are in the presence of the Lord. When we express our specific thoughts and requests to the Lord, we fully acknowledge something. When we pray to the Lord, we are fully acknowledging the very thing that it is God to whom we are praying, and it is He is the one that is sovereign in all of our lives. This is what happens when we pray to God. We remove ourselves from the equation. So prayer is not an opportunity for us to, to wax eloquent on the things that we know or don't know. When we pray, we go to the Lord and we disclose our hearts, our souls, our lives, our requests, and we say, Lord, I give this to You. And however You deem it in Your will, I trust. We express our dependence not in ourselves, but in His sovereignty. So what happens then? This takes the burden off of us, doesn't it? Lord, this is who I am, and You've put this on my heart, but I'm going to now give this back to You. And because You are God, and because You are sovereign, I trust that you will do what you are going to do in this particular situation. It removes then our anxiety because we trust in the Lord. We trust in His reign and His rule over the totality of life. Prayer orientates our lives towards God. We grow in an open relationship with God by presenting our needs and our requests Therefore, we trust that the Lord has sovereign control over the situation, whether the Cowboys win or the Patriots win. When we give ourselves to the Lord in prayer, we trust the Lord's will to be done in the given situation. The outcome may be entirely different than what we expect or hope, but if we honestly trust the Lord, then our fears go away and our anxieties are relieved. We realize that we don't hold the reins of control. He does. And that is good, and that is right. And when we fully realize this reality, the peace of God, in His power and in His presence, Paul says, is with us. When we pray in this way, in full disclosure, and in full trust in a sovereign God, the fears and the anxieties and the worries wash away because we know He is in control. This gives us a new outlook on ourselves, on our family, on our neighbors, on our enemies. Pray. Pray without ceasing. He also then says to practice. Paul then encourages his friends 
in verses 8 and 9 to do something else. He says, I want you to think about a few things. After you pray and when you pray, I want your minds to be set on something or some things. He says in this practical practicing, Paul says to us we need to trust that the Lord is a God of peace. And that God becomes the heartbeat then that drives our lives. He calls his friends to think upon the virtue of the Lord. To think and act upon those things that are what are honorable. Those things that pertain to justice. Those things of purity. Things that are lovely or can we say beautiful. To think upon those things that are commendable. The things that are worthy of praise. So he says think about these things. When you think about your world today, think about things that are beautiful. Think about music, art, poetry, novels. Think about the changing of the seasons. It's a beautiful day outside. Think about flowers and the changing of the leaves. Think about justice and righteousness and what that means. Think about peace. Think about things that are excellent. Pursue the things worthy of praise. Because this is who Christians are. He says then, you know what? It's almost as if he stops and says, hold on, don't just think about those things. Do them. Practice these things is the word he uses. Practice being commendable. Practice being beautiful, not in a vain way. Practice being commendable. Practice being just. Practice being excellent. Because this is who Christians are. When we are doing these things, when we pursue these things, this list that he just gives us here in this verse, verses 8 and 9, When we practice these things, when we we practice being honorable, when we practice being just, when we practice being pure, when we practice pursuing the things that are lovely, when we practice being commendable, when we practice being excellent, when we practice pursuing things worthy of praise, these things you've learned and received, practice them the end of verse 9. And the result is peace. The God of peace will be with you. Paul puts forward throughout his letters that the peace comes from the presence of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is presence. Paul then concludes his letter to his friends by giving joy and thanks for the gifts and the partnership that they have enjoyed with one another. He says, pray, practice. And he says, partner. He says, partner with those in ministry. Partner with me. And he gives thanks for their partnership, for their friendship. And so when we want the peace and when we understand the peace, we pray and we practice and then we partner with people in ministry. We are in ministry and others in ministry. We serve with one another. We partner with missionaries. We partner with church planters. We partner with campus ministers. We partner with Sunday school teachers, with nursery coordinators. We partner with one another. Why and how is it that we understand and experience peace in those things when we partner with other people? How is peace realized in that? Because once again, we're stepping outside of ourselves. 
We're stepping outside of our desires, our comforts, our longing to be right and to be comfortable and be in control. And we say, no, I'm going to partner with you in what you are doing. And we step outside of that and we step into their lives. And we love and support them in and through these things. You see, it's when we completely focus on ourselves that the anxiety and the fear and the trouble and the, our stomach gets turned into knots. But when we look out and we partner with other people, we realize that there's other people's needs other than our own, and most likely those needs are greater than mine. And it really is casting our gaze upon other people. But why do we do that? How is it that we can do that? It comes back to the cross, my beloved friends. Jesus left the throne room of heaven to take on flesh. He didn't have to. He didn't need to. He had all the glory, all the praise that was worthy of him. And yet he humbled himself. And he says to Ryan Arkema, Ryan, I love you. To the point that I'm going to die for you. And he says to Redeemer Arlington, I love you. To the point that I'm going to die for you. And I'm going to rise again from the dead for you. And I promise to return for you, to make all things new for you, to give you a glorious body for you, to be eternity with you. And you want to know peace? Do the same. Do the same for your neighbors. Pray. Practice. Partner. And the presence of the Lord will provide you with peace. And so then when we understand that, then we can understand with Paul, as he's chained to a Roman prison and writing this letter to his friends, he says to us, rejoice. Because this is who the Lord is and what he's done for us. Again, I say to you, my friends, rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we do rejoice. We give you thanks for who you are and what you've done in our lives. We give you thanks for your grace and your love and your mercy. So Holy Spirit, help us to pray. Help us to practice. Help us to partner. Show us your peace. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.